welcome to another episode of Dog Talk. Today I want to talk about the layered stress model. And that is a um, framework for looking at how dogs react to their environment, how they respond to triggers they may be dealing with, and they may have reactions to. But it's a different approach than jumping straight into the um, dealing with the trigger itself. So this, <clears throat> it's a way of looking at the stress buildup and what the different layers of stress are that dogs experience that ultimately lead to a blow up. But let's go piece by piece. So the layout stress model goes back as far as I know in its very first iteration, which is really almost unrecognizable from what it then became, to um, Dr. Gene Dodds, who had like a very rudimentary version of stress buildup model at some point. But what it really has become and is today was created and really, yeah, really created at this point um, by um, a dog trainer named Chad Macken and a friend of mine who is a dog trainer in Chicago. And he formulated the layered stress model as we are knowing it today and using it today. So he is really the, the author of the layered stress model. <clears throat> so the layered stress model, as I said, is a framework of looking at stress in dogs. But let's start with a human example to kind of highlight this a little bit. Um, imagine you wake up in the morning with a headache. Then you step out of bed onto a Lego block. Ouch. Go into the bathroom, no toothpaste. Go in the kitchen, no tea or coffee left. Go in the car, it doesn't start. Finally it starts, you drive to work, get a ticket. This day is not great. I think we can agree on that. Um, the first person who has to talk to you at work, I don't want to be. Because clearly, you're going to be already loaded up well over 100 by the time you even set a foot through the door. And the reason is not that any single one of these things was so monstrously horrible that you couldn't deal with it. Well, maybe the ticket. depends on the ticket. But it's the accumulation of stress from all these different factors. Stress accumulates and stress builds up. The more stress factors you get experienced to, the worse it gets. Because what we need to do when we're exposed to stress, we need to control our impulses because our impulses are not necessarily the greatest. And impulse control is literally the one task in the brain that burns more energy than any other task. So when you get tired, the first thing that goes out in your brain is impulse control. And as things happen, as stress factors accumulate, you're going to get tired. Your brain's going to burn out controlling the impulses. And you're going to blow up. You're going to go through your threshold. There's only so much stress any being can handle before they blow up. Completely normal. It's a biological thing. There's nothing wrong with you or with your dog or anybody um, who goes through this. It's a completely normal biological process. Stress accumulates. You get tired. Brain burns out. Can no longer handle stressors. And now, even the slightest thing that by itself would be meaningless can make you blow up because it's just the final straw that you cannot handle anymore. Could be the final minute thing. It doesn't have to be anything severe at this point. Once you go through your threshold, it's over. Where your threshold is depends on you. 
and depends on your dog. Everybody is different. Every dog is different. How much stress you or a dog can handle depends on your genetics. There's nothing to be done about that. It is what it is. We can't change any of it. This is not to make excuses for reactions of dogs once we get to those, but it's an explanation of what we should consider as we deal with problem situations and reactions that dogs have towards certain um, triggers in the environment. So let's look at the different uh, layers of stress that we have to consider with dogs. So the first layer I'd like to call the base layer. I'm not sure Chad calls it the base layer, but I call it the base layer. And the base layer is kind of the, the communication between you and your dog because there's always going to be some disconnect. He's or she is a dog, you're a human, you don't speak each other's language, so you have to try to make sense of one another. And the more you get to know each other, the less of a problem that becomes, but there's never 100% harmony. There's always going to be this little bit of, um, but I don't really know what you're trying to tell me right now. So there is a little bit of that. And that will never go away completely, but it gets eventually to the point where it becomes uh, no, no longer a relevant factor where it's so minor that it doesn't really make a difference anymore. But it's definitely there, and it can be there quite a bit if you don't make an effort or your dog doesn't make, can't, can't understand you. So if you can't clear up the communication, it doesn't become, the dog doesn't feel better understood and you don't understand your dog, that will remain a stress factor. It is one level of stress. So imagine you, assuming you don't speak Chinese, um, if you're Chinese, pick a different country and language. But let's say, average English speaker, I dump you somewhere in the countryside of China without cell reception, without a cell phone, and nobody speaks English. So now you have to try to find your way out of that. Um, and could be difficult because communication is going to be hard. And that's going to be a little bit of stress. That is what your dog goes through in trying to communicate with a human every single day. And as I said, the longer you have your dog, the better you get to know each other, the less of a factor it is. But it's there. So base layer of stress, stress factor one. Second layer of stress, health. So if you are, or if I am, if I have a headache, um, I'm, I'm not that pleasant. I don't want to have conversations. I don't want to talk to people. My head is hurting. I want to be left alone and get this, get this sorted out. Most people are similar. When you have an ailment, you're not as pleasant because, again, you've burned through a lot of your impulse control in your brain and you're not feeling well. You don't want to deal with things. You're putting up with less and less. Well, what if your dog has a headache? How would you know? You couldn't. Right? Dogs generally, because they're predators, they're trying to hide their ailments and their injuries quite well. So by the time a dog actually shows you that something's wrong, it's gotten pretty bad. So minor aches, they're not going to show you. What if your dog has a tummy upset? What if your dog is a little nauseated? What if your dog is a little lethargic, but powers through, you maybe don't notice it, right? But a little fatigued. There's some things that you may pick up on and some things that are harder to pick up on. But if your dog's health is not optimal, for whatever reason, could be something completely minor, it could be temporary, maybe you went on a long hike yesterday, sprained an ankle a little bit. It could be any, any minor thing that happens to us, it's part of daily life, it doesn't have to be serious. But if your dog's not feeling well, and you don't know, you don't know that there's a stress element that comes from not feeling well. 
So the things that we monitor in this is obviously the things we can see. Is my dog sleeping more or less? Is he drinking more or less? Is he urinating more or less? Is he eating more or less? Is he more lethargic? Is he slower? Is he seems more tired? Things like that. So when your dog seems off a little bit, don't just brush that off. Take that seriously. Something's not quite right. That may not be the best day to go to a new dog park or meet new people or have a party that your dog participates in. Maybe that's a party he waits out in another room and gets to rest and not meet everybody that is new. So kind of factor that in into your thinking. So health is a stress layer that is very important. It affects us just the same. So just think of how you feel. If you're not feeling well, you're going to be less tolerant of things. The next stress layer is the lifestyle, biological fulfillment. And now we're getting into training, the training realm already. Because lifestyle and biological fulfillment is really something we control, but we're not really doing a good job of it. Dogs are apex predators, meaning they are predators that don't really have natural enemies. Doesn't mean they couldn't fall victim to some other animal, but they, they're not generally not on the menu of another species. That, that's what apex predator means. But predators like to hunt. So everything in your dog genetically is designed to want to hunt. And there are things around hunting that dogs just tremendously love, no matter what the breed is. And the general hunting aspects that dogs enjoy, that we also use in play, you probably heard this when you listen to the play video, is searching, stalking, chasing, fighting, celebration, consumption. Those are the aspects of the hunt. Searching, got to find it. Stalking, got to sneak up to it. Chasing, got to catch it because it's going to run. Fighting, I have to overpower it, overcome an obstacle, because it's going to fight back. There are no suicide rabbits, so they don't just jump down the predator's throat. They're trying to get away. Um, and then we catch it, we can carry it around, celebrate, be happy that we got it, and we can consume it. So those are the aspects of the hunt. And those are the things dogs love doing genetically. They want to do them. They're born wanting to do them. So when they play in the litter, with their litter mates, that's what they do. They play predatory games. And obviously they have no intention of killing or eating the other puppy. But they're learning how to do these things well. They're practicing all these aspects during play because they need them for life. So they practice them in this context. Now when they live with us, oftentimes they don't get to do any of that. Because we, many of us, most of us, don't go hunting. No, very, I've only two clients of mine over all the years, I think they actually went hunting with their dogs. And their dogs are having a blast doing it. But it's very few people who do this these days. That's fine. But we need to give our dogs an outlet. We need to still provide them with a biological fulfillment that's missing from the lifestyle that we now have given them. Because it's not their lifestyle. It's our lifestyle. And our lifestyle isn't necessarily good for them. Dogs don't want to sleep on the sofa 20 hours a day. Well, I mean, they sleep 15 hours or so, but they want to do other things outside of that. And the things they like doing are part of the hunting sequence. So when we play with them, we can give them biological fulfillment. But if we don't, we have a very genetically frustrated being on our hands. Again, try to relate to yourself. Let's say you have a hobby that just is a blast for you. Something that really makes you go, maybe it's hiking, maybe you like to play a sport or swimming or whatever. It's some activity of some sort. 
play the piano, paint, whatever, whatever rocks your boat, whatever really makes you come alive. Most people have a passion of that sort. Now you have an injury, can be temporary, doesn't have to be dramatic, maybe you break something, and now you can't do it for a couple of months. Maybe you have a cast on, you're going to get frustrated. You're going to get stressed from that. You're going to like, mm, you want to go and can. It's, like, it's frustrating. You're limited now because something that really makes you go has been taken from you. Even you know it's just temporarily. But during this time, it's going to be like something's missing, right? And that's how our dogs often go through life because we don't give them any of that. They crave this and we don't give it to them. Well, it causes stress. It's a side effect of not having a fulfilled lifestyle. So fulfilling dogs' desires is not walking them around the block. It is letting them explore these aspects of play, figuring out which ones your dog enjoys the most, and then using those to structure a game that actually helps reducing the stress. That's part of the training we do. But that's, that's the stress layer of the lifestyle stress layer. So the next, the next stress layer is related to clarity or lack thereof. So everybody, including us again, there's no difference between us and animals in these things, functions best when the parameters of interaction and when the rules of the environment you are operating in are well understood. And when they're not understood, it's quite stressful. Let's say, I mean, what's an example? So let, let's say we have a room and it's an empty room you get put in that room or you go in that room and you don't know where you can go and where you cannot go. And if you make the wrong move, you get zapped by electroshock or something like that. There's electricity on the floor, you step in the wrong place, you get zapped. That would be quite stressful, wouldn't it? Because you don't know where you put your foot. There's no clarity in your environment at all about um, what you can and can do and what will happen if you make a mistake. It's complete lack of clarity. You don't want to go back in that room. That room is going to be a problem for you. <laughs> I don't want this room. That's not a good room. I don't know where to safely step. But now let's say we put lines on the floor and give you a clear pathway. White lines and red, red area. White you can walk on, red you cannot. Now you can step in there on the white, assuming that's the safe spot, and walk the white, experience nothing. Maybe you test the red and get a zap and like, okay, that's it. But now you have clarity. The room is still a room that gives you electroshocks, but only if you step outside the path that's been marked out. So now there is clarity about consequences. On the white, no shock. On the red, shock. Right? So clarity versus no clarity is, makes a big difference. And it's not just extreme example like the shock room <laughs> that I just gave you. It's a general thing. So if we are not clear with our dogs and our instructions, they become confused, and that's, again, stressful. So let me take a more dog-related example that's quite common. Let's say we teach our dogs go down, and we teach the dog that means you lie down on, on your paws and your belly, and you just go to down position. That's what we teach them. And then my dog lies down on the sofa, and he's lying down. But I go down. I don't want him on the sofa. I mean, I personally wouldn't care, but let's just say <laughs> you care. You have a nice white sofa and you don't want it. Um, so now you say down to your dog when he's already in a down just on a sofa. That's confusing. Your dog does not understand. 
Now you get mad at him or you shush him off and he's like, but I'm in a down. What is the issue? He told me to go down when I was already in a down. I don't understand. Now, if I had a different command train that tells him to get off surfaces like an off, I would use that instead and say off. And now it's clear again. He's in a down, but I see off. He gets off, go down again on the ground. Clarity. So my commands are now clear. I'm not confusing them. The dog jumps up at you. A lot of people say down. Well, if down means lying on the ground, then probably not going to happen. I mean, you could technically stop and do that, but again, he's jumping up at you. So a down's probably not going to work unless it's a really classic conditioned behavior. So when we train dogs, and we train commands to mean a certain thing, we should understand what it is that we train. If we train a sit, what does that mean? Does that mean just put your butt on the ground? And also does it mean keep your butt on the ground? Does it include me walking away? Does it include me carrying things? Does it include me walking out of sight? Does he still have to stay there? If we don't clarify that in training, our dogs get confused. And they think they understand what well, means I have to sit until I can't see you anymore. And then you come back in the room and you yell at me. What is that? I don't understand. <laughs> I was sitting until you left. I thought that's what it meant. Um, so clarity in our teaching, clarity in our instruction, and not just with command, but in general consistency. Uh, can I be in this area? Can I not? Do you allow me to jump up at you? Do you not? Can I jump up at you when you, when you ask me to? Is that the only time I can? Can I tug on something if you ask me to? Or can I also tug on your jacket? So clarity around life and lifestyle and, and the home and clarity around training and everything we do with our dogs goes a long way to either reduce stress or increase stress. So if we're clear, it reduces stress. If we're unclear, we're confusing. It increases stress because the dogs gets confused. So clarity is a big component. It's, again, it's a training issue. If you just think about how can you be clear with your dog? What command did I give? What did I include that command to mean when I taught it to my dog? What did I not include in it? Has he assumed it one way or the other now? So if so, maybe I need to make a little adjustment and retrain some aspects of that. So you have to kind of think about how can I make it as clear as possible because the more clear it is, the less stress there will be. So clarity is an important thing. The next thing that causes stress is leashes and collars. Because leashes are frustrating restraint devices to dogs who want to go places. And unless we teach them how to properly interact with a leash and a collar, they're not going to know. They just want to go places, we hold them back, and there's all kinds of reasons with frustration, and they trigger the seeking system, and they want to go and pull. There's all kinds of things that go into that. I don't want to get into that all here. But they keep pulling because they want to go places. And we keep holding them back because we want them with us. But there's two fundamental um, disagreements that we have when it comes to leashes and collars. And the first is when we walk together, and we want to walk together, we're using a leash and a collar, but we want to walk together, and the first disagreement is the pace in which we're doing it. Because the average walking speed of a dog is about four miles an hour, while the average walking speed of a person is about two miles an hour. So if we're just moving about, we want to go at different paces. If you have ever hiked off-leash with a dog somewhere where that's possible, what you see is that dogs will go out, come back. 
go out, come back, go out, come back. They'll circle around, you go out, come back, go out, come back. They'll hike twice the distance in the same amount of time by going out and coming back. That is what a dog who hikes with his family will often do. And that's because they want to go out. So that's the first disagreement that we have. And the second disagreement that we have is the distance between us. Because people tend to get or feel disconnected from another person or an animal or another being once the distance goes somewhere between six, seven, eight feet. I mean, try it out. Stand next to each other, go to like four feet, five feet, six feet, seven feet, eight feet. See when it starts like feeling, yeah, we're still in the same vicinity, but we're not kind of really together anymore. So somewhere around six feet is where most people kind of start feeling disconnected. For some, it's a little earlier. For some, it's a little later. But it's somewhere around six feet. Uh, I think that's actually the reason leashes are six feet long, because we feel very comfortable with six feet. Six feet works for us. Beyond six feet, mm, depends. Uh, but so, yeah, the distance between us. So we will start feel disconnected past six feet or seven. A dog won't. A dog will still feel connected with you at 50 or 100 yards. I mean, when, when dog packs in the wild hunt, they'll they fan out to get prey, and they'll, they'll be 50 to 100 yards apart as they chase some prey, and they look and cut it off, and there's all kinds of things they do. At great distances, they don't feel disconnected at all. To, to a dog, that distance is not a disconnect. It's just perfect. It's fine. So they don't see the concern that we have with that. But by not understanding these two factors, these two disagreements, we create a lot of conflict with leashes and collars that can absolutely be addressed through training. And again, training will make these problems go away and reduce the stress from that. So the stress layer of leashes and collars can also be reduced. But these are all the stressors that we kind of control. Right? So there's space, there's health, there's lifestyle, um, clarity, leashes and collars. And on top of this wonderful pyramid of stress, there is our triggers. Kids on skateboards, other dogs, loud noises, whatever our dog may react to or blow up on. That would be a trigger, right? A trigger in the environment, something that stimulates the dog and makes them go. And when, when you go and hire trainers, what they often just do is they want to work on those triggers. They want to come and counter-condition them, or flood the dog, or uh, do all kinds of things, differential reinforcement routines, whatever, to try to deal with those triggers and those reactions straight up. And that's not necessarily the best approach. So the whole idea of the layer stress model is to understand that this, on top, is just the top. There's a whole body of stress under that. And if we can reduce all these stressors, the dog may actually come with his comfort level under his threshold, and the trigger is still not something he enjoys, but he may no longer blow, blow up. It may be much easier for the dog to deal with it or even ignore it, or maybe take a different course of action than going to blow up. Because if I keep the stress level low, space, health, lifestyle, clarity, leashes, if I compress all that stress down to training and just making sure my dog doesn't have these external stressors gone through the roof, if I reduce these, I haven't burned through all the impulse control. My dog hasn't burned through all the impulse control in his brain. He may be able to still regulate his impulses. The trigger is still below the threshold at this point. And yeah, he doesn't like the thing, whatever it is, but he may not necessarily blow up at this point. So now, actually, 
whatever I need to do to deal with the trigger itself will also become a lot easier. Some triggers you may not have to deal with if you do all these things. Some triggers you may have to deal with. Or maybe you can't reduce the stress enough and you have to deal with the triggers. But no matter what you do, if you reduce the stress, it will be easier than just attacking the trigger directly or you may not even have to do it. So the dog will be much better off if you bring the stress down because permanent high stress isn't healthy for anyone. We all know that. So reducing stress, is that is the idea of using the, the layered stress model to look at the stress of your dog and bring that down. That's the whole, that's the whole reason for the model and for its existence, to, to look at this differently and not just work on the triggers all the time. The dog blows up at this, the dog blows up at that, the dog doesn't like this one, it doesn't like that one. Let's just counter condition it or punish it or whatever we're going to do. <clears throat> and just doing that straight up is often a losing proposition. You can go and do that for a long time and it may not work at all. And people are like, well, I did all this and it doesn't work. Well, your dog's too stressed. You know, your dog is too tired, your dog is too exhausted, he can't even function with all this other stuff. He's really not feeling well and he has no understanding of his environment and he's genetically frustrated left and right. He is not going to function around that skateboard, whatever thing that upsets him. So getting all the stressors under control first will go a long way to address whatever problem there may be. And maybe you don't even have to once you address the stressors because the dog will handle it much better if he's no longer going through a threshold. So that, that's the layered stress model in a nutshell. There is on our, on our website, there is a diagram, there's a chart, there's a write-up. There is lots on the layered stress model. This video and podcast goes with that, but um, every single one of them should kind of stand on its own, and I think it does. But if you want to look at the, the, the visuals, it certainly helps to understand it better. And to factor it into, into your interaction with your dog, into living with your dog, and most definitely when you train your dog, or whatever, whatever challenge you're dealing with, with your dog. So um, the, the things that really are the, the training focus would be creating a biologically fulfilling lifestyle, the clarity and the, the frustration from leash and colors. So those are the training aspects of that. The other things are good lifestyle management things like communication, the base layer, and the health, obviously. But we can address a lot of things through the proper interactions through play, because that's where biological fulfillment really comes in. Um, yeah, I hope this was, uh, was helpful, and this podcast was actually a, a new recording. We had a version of that before. I think one, this one is a little bit better, more refined, and this is an updated version. Be live on the website together with the article on the layered stress model, and obviously also the podcast in the stream. And I uh, hope you enjoyed it. Hopefully you find it helpful, got something out of it, and I'll see you next time. Bye.